Welcome to Can I Kick It? This is a podcast about film festivals. My name is Jesse Weber, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Andy Gramuga. Emilio Lias. As well as by two guests, Audrey Fox and Morris Yang. Hello. Thank you for for joining us. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being on. Yep. So we're going to be kind of wrapping up the uh, main slate of the New York Film Festival uh, with the kind of last week or so. So we've got uh, the closing film, which is French Exit, the uh, last of the Steve McQueen small acts films, which is Red, White, and Blue, as well as Adarabi and Nicolats, Noturno, Undina, Beginning, and we'll have a little bit on American Utopia at the end. Uh, so yeah, if we want to go ahead and get right into it with uh, French Exit, does anyone want to start us off on that? Maybe Andy, since I know you like it a lot. I can start. Yeah, I um, was, I, you know, I w- w- didn't have super huge expectations. I'd never seen any Azil Jacobs movies or anything before. Um I do enjoy Michelle Pfeiffer. I enjoy Lucas Hedges a lot. Uh, you know, Tracy Letts always, always loved to see him involved in a project in any way, shape or form. So I had like modestly high expectations. And then I just like, I guess it's maybe about five or 10 minutes in. There's like a joke that like really killed me with Michelle Pfeiffer and a knife uh, that like really <laughs> made me laugh a lot. And I was like, oh, this like is attuned exactly to my sense of humor. And so I just had enormous fun with it the whole way through. I thought it was incredibly funny. Uh, I thought the performances were really uh, well calibrated to sort of match that that pitch, that level of, of humor that they're going for specifically. That's like with the slightly elevated dialogue and with the... Um, the, you know, the very like literary sense of, it's like adapted from a novel. So it's very clear in, in, in the text of the movie that like, this is all stuff from a novel and it's like, uh, but um, I, yeah, I really, really, really loved it. It's one of my favorite movies that I've seen this year, I think. And it's, uh, uh, it's just like enormously enjoyable to me, like the watching these characters who are um, so precisely drawn sort of like run into each other and the way that it builds in, into having more and more characters sort of involved in the plot and involved in the action, I found really joyous. Um, I think uh, every side character like had a really fun bit um, or game uh, to play in, in, in the story of the movie. Um, there was like a couple of moments where I was like, I'm not sure like exactly whether the, the perspective the movie has on this, you know, particularly Michelle Pfeiffer, who is really tremendous in the movie um, and like delivers all the dialogue like with such like commitment and like she she like is the the way she portrays this character I think is really extraordinary um she interacts with like homeless people a a few times in the movie and those were the moments where I was most like questioning like what the movie was doing and what the movie's perspective and everything was but um I mostly came down I think on that like it has a pretty like aware perspective on like how on what her interactions with those people are and like what her view is versus like what they are, who they are as people and how they view her. But um, other than that, like everything else, I was just like, this is all like very funny, very interesting. And the characters, I think were just like, I, I, I really enjoyed watching them on screen. Yeah, I can say, I don't know that I responded to it quite as strongly. I guess the main thing is I just found it to be somewhat overwhelmingly strange in a way that I don't know everyone has found it to be and that's not necessarily something that I dislike it's just like it doesn't you know Andy you were saying that it makes sense that it was adapted from a novel I to an extent agree and that it feels 
weird that this is a movie, but I also wasn't necessarily watching this saying, oh, but of course all of this would make sense if it were a novel. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it really fits in any world, and yet somehow you're right that these characters are really interesting, and I think that all of the performances have a lot to do with that. Obviously, Michelle Pfeiffer is great. Lucas Hedges, I think, is very low-key, but quite good. Uh, Imogen Poots, I really like. And then I would say the other stand-up whose name, uh, standout, whose name I'm reminding myself of is uh, Valerie Mahaffey as yes. Madame Reynard. She's so good. Who is probably the funniest performance in the movie. Yeah. As a, uh, a woman who semi endears herself to Michelle Pfeiffer's character once she is moved to Paris. Yeah, I mean it's it's got a lot of great cat content. I was very <laughs> excited about that. I love a movie that really just like lingers on its cats. Um so that was fun. I I thought Michelle Pfeiffer was really really funny to me um there's one scene where she's negotiating with um an art dealer Mm -hmm. that i find delightful um i kind of felt like there were moments that were really 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 strong um and then i I felt like it was kind of somewhat less than the some of its parts in some ways where i just wanted it to hit harder i wanted um to have more of an emotional connection but I felt like there was like a little bit of a wall up where I was just watching a lot of like kooky fun stuff happening, but um, it wasn't hitting me emotionally. But that having been said, I watched this virtually on my computer um, and I'm like, you know, 50% dead inside right now. So I'm finding that I'm having that problem with a lot of movies. So I I don't know if I can fully fault um, French exit for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird one. I, it's sort of been like, I've sort of been going back and forth in my mind about it a lot. Like, I think Pfeiffer is great. And the story that the movie is telling with her character and through her performance is like, sort of, it's like interesting. And I did connect with it emotionally because there is like a sort of specificity to her self-loathing that I very much identify with. But I sort of, I think it's or some or around the side characters that I sort of appreciate as bits but I don't know if they fully come together to do anything that that much about like towards like the larger point of like the story or plot like I think Hedges gives a good performance but at the end of the day I'm sort of left like out in the cold by that character I don't know if like whatever conclusion you come with him is satisfying or if the movie's trying to be satisfying on any level, I do mm-hmm. sort of appreciate its iciness. It's a it's very particular in a way that I can I can sometimes vibe with. Like I thought of the movie in terms of a movie that I've seen it compared to a lot, which is like Royal Tenenbaums, which is a sort of a similar like kaleidoscopic. A lot of characters look at like the sort of upper middle class broken people but that's not a movie that I love which is like I have weird Wes Anderson takes and not liking that movie is one of them and this is sort of more in my wavelength in that it's sort of like desperate and sort of mean in a way that I appreciate more than I would a movie like Royal Tenenbaum so I like that about it but it's just very strange. It has like a very particular tone that I, it's also took me like 25 minutes for me to be evil, even to understand like what the vibe of it is going. Cause as like Jesse and Andy mentioned, it, it's like very, it's like, it's clearly being adapted from a book and sometimes has like passages of dialogue that feel unnatural coming out of like even the best performers voice like a mild spoiler for the movie is that Tracy Letts sort of plays the cat slash dead husband of Michelle Pfeiffer and that as as much as I'm a person who loves Tracy Letts and think he's a great performer I don't know if any of that was sort of satisfying in the way that I needed it to be for the entire movie to come together. So I'm sort of soft positive, but I'm curious what Morris thinks about it. Oh, I haven't seen the film yet, actually. Okay. But okay. 
uh, anybody, uh, Jesse, do you have any other thoughts? Think so. I, I I guess I do, in that it it also is a movie that I could imagine playing better and maybe even playing more emotionally on a second watch. Again, not to to spoil it, but there is like a slight book ending structure, and I think that that on a rewatch might both on a rewatch and just like as it sits with me can may kind of put the rest of the film in a slightly different light. I sort of feel similarly. Like it's, it's for sure a movie where knowing what it's doing from the beginning probably enhances your eyes, like how much you right. vibe with it or not. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I also like it is one. It is the movie I think that I've seen that I most wish I have seen with a crowd just because I found it so like laugh out loud. Like I was in my bedroom alone, like laughing out loud at it. And like, I do feel like the crowd environment really would have like enhanced that aspect of it even more for me. Um, Yeah. There might be a lot of people in that like crowd that don't laugh again. That might be a weird vibe. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I wonder if it would be like a half the crowd was into it and half of it was against it, which is always an interesting dynamic. Uh, in any in any screening I know yeah it has been very divisive uh, for, for people since since it uh, in, in the initial reactions that posted they, they they screened it early and then it was embargoed until the actual screening which not a lot of the movies have done I think in New York Film Festival this year uh, yeah, so that was sort of unusual for the bigger yeah. titles I right think. yeah um, but it was sort of interesting seeing all the reactions coming out at once um, mm-hmm. yeah I think I mean yeah I, I think there's definitely stuff that I think is you know, speaking about like, you know, the, the Tracy Letts of it all, like there's, and, and like some of the characters, um, like the, uh, the, the psychic, right. And like, there's definitely mm-hmm. characters who I think um, are, are definitely like tricky and like are, are, it's not really super apparent, like what exactly the movie is doing with them at all times. Um, I, and I, and I, I, I did appreciate that. And I sort of, uh, do agree that it would be like something that I would really l- focus on in, in in second viewing and and maybe come to more of a conclusion with for some of those things. Yeah, yeah. and I, it's like I enjoy all the interplay, so it's not like I even think like the movie should lose them or anything. Like right. w- when towards the later of the movie, when like this sort of apartment that sort of serves as one of the main settings for the film is like full of a bunch of different people and all these dynamics. And they're sort of bouncing off of each other. I like I really enjoy that section of the movie. I just wish that the conclusion, I don't even know if I'm asking it for it, their conclusions to be more satisfying as much as just like me to get it a little bit. It sort of exists at too much a remove for me to fully vibe. All right. Um, well, with that, do we want to move on to uh, uh, Red, I guess White, it and also, Blue? Uh, one oh, le- sure. I guess we should also say, like, it's it's a Sony Pictures Classics, and I think the, the plan is to release it in February. Uh, yes. If, um, as part of this, like, award season, I think, uh, mostly, although I think individual critics awards, that might differ. We'll see how they handle that. But, um, but it's definitely something that I think is going to be a part of the conversation, like, in the in the near near term future for for folks who are are interested in it maybe it will be part of the conversation in that it is technically eligible right well and also and just that it's out and available for viewing right yes in that that conversation of people seeing oh sure yes it will be be in that conversation assuming sony pictures classics because i think they may have announced it as a theatrical release in february which yeah we'll see we'll see but yeah yeah so uh red white and blue does anyone want to get us started on that i have not seen so i cannot i've not seen it either uh i mean if you want me to start it uh red white and blue which is the third part of uh steve mcqueen's small axe series of films which has which is premiering here at the new york film festival it stars john boyega as this sort of like he's a sort of he's a phd student who like it becomes a who is a research scientist who like later figures out that he wants to become a police officer because he wants to like create trust between the community and 
the police and he's sort of fi- figures that he's this sort of like boisterous personality who's the type who can like bring that change from within and it's sort of like depicts like the domestic problems that he has with like his his dad who has like a long stand standing like distrust and hatred of the police and how his dad reacts to that and how that affects his relationship how it really affects his relationship with just like everyday people and how like it's sort of he exists in a position to make sort of no one happy it just like sort of creates distrust within all members of like his community and his family and also the police don't like him because he's trying to like raise a voice I found it I think it's like the other small X films I think Steve McQueen brings a lot of like interesting visuals and I think he's like is like very smart about calibrating the sort of performances in it. I think Jan Boyega gives a very good charismatic performance as the lead. But while Lover's Rock is sort of like this unique, like very fun and like loving depiction of this sort of party and which I loved. And then Mangrove is this more this sort of like loud courtroom drama with a lot of stirring excitement. And and both of those movies have a lot of a lot of interest of like depicting the specificity of the communities in which they are centered around. I found Red, White, and Blue to be sort of like cliche is maybe not the right word for it, but it's like somebody described to me as like you can read the description and then you sort of know everything that's gonna happen in the movie, and then everything that's gonna happen in the movie sort of happens. And so while I think Steve McQueen is trying to do a lot of interesting stuff, I didn't like it as much as either of the other parts. But I don't know how you feel. Mm, well, I actually, I agree with you in some ways that it's it's very calibrated. It's it's a very um, it it has it has the trappings of narrative compared to let's say Lovers Rock, which was like I think one of McQueen's most um free flowing films in his entire like career because it's simply like it's a dance party that. It just traverses through the different halls, different pieces and everything. But I think that I actually liked it more than uh, Mangrove because I thought Mangrove was a very, it, it played too much on emotional um, calibration and you kind of, and I get it, it's, it's meant to be like a rousing sort of piece against uh, inequality and brutality, but a lot of pieces, a lot of bits inside hit, like it, it, it just felt too conventional, the, the takedowns and everything. It was like, it's, it's like, Quite anticipate, you anticipate everything quite well. You see the police being brutal, and you see how the black community stands up to it heroically. They face the tribulations, and eventually they get like a bittersweet sort of resolution. And it's not for mangrove. It's not for red, white, blue. It's there's a similar uh, sort of force at play. But I thought that it first of all, it, it's it's there's a greater brevity to it than mangrove, which was like I think two hours long. But um, red, white, blue is like just just about eighty minutes long. And it starts off with like a, a, a flashback to when John Boyega was this young kid and these two police officers just come along and, you know, they, they try to frisk him. And all of a sudden, when, when it cuts to like the scene when he's growing up and being a PhD scientist, we see his motivation to join the force. And you think that, you think it's like, um, the thing about this, this, this transition is that McQueen doesn't sort of provide you with a sort of very clear uh, motivation for whether why he wants to join a police force or why he doesn't want to join a police force, so to speak. It's almost like a, it's like an unseen, unheard of uh, motivation and desire to, you know, to, to to restore law and order and to foster trust in the community. And I thought that was interesting because he didn't, there wasn't this sort of like um, build up where he had he was either like violated by the police as a child and therefore hated the police, or he was he had a role model to look up to when he was younger and therefore wanted to join a police force. There's no such, um, uh, how to put, narrative sort of structure that would um, therefore cheapen the film, I think. And I think for Red, White, Blue, um, a lot of it is, it's, it's kind of uh, conventional in the sense that you, you see that, you know, he, he keeps trying to foster change. And as what Emilio said, you read the blurb and it's kind of, if, if you can kind of predict what would happen, but I, don't, I think it makes it no less uh, uh, affecting to see how um, not just uh, it's not just it's not just the police who discriminate against him, but even the people closest to him. Like for example, his girlfriend. I think his girlfriend. Um, when he at, at one point in the middle, when he tries when he breaks down and says that he can't, he thinks it's all pointless and fruitless. And his girlfriend just sort of um, attacks him back and says that it, it was never going to be easy. And at this point, I think I felt a lot of sympathy for Boyega's character because 
it's really not easy and people can't, uh, it's only left to the viewer to sort of empathize with this situation fully because only we are privy to all the sort of uh, discrimination from here and there, all the sort of troubles and conflicts that he has to face in just one day. And um, yeah, I think, I think that this might be a com not a very good comparison, but I thought of a lot of them. Um, I thought the ending scene was uh, uh, a pretty good one. And I think it, it bears a lot of similarities to, I think, uh, some of the, the Russian films, the Dao films that came out this year at the Berlin Nala. Okay, they're two different, uh, they're two different environments altogether. But I think the way McQueen shoots Red, White, Blue, and especially in some of the scenes when they're just long takes, and um, in some shots, they are like, I think the moving cameras. And I think that it's the silences that ring throughout blue when uh, throughout the later part feels very oppressive and there's there's a lack of um yeah I think the lack of sort of colorful music like you see in lovers rock or even the the, the hitting hard hitting notes of mangrove kind of make this a more sobering film than anything else because mangrove is uh mangrove is ultimately you know there's a, there's a there's a sense of justice that gets fulfilled at the end but red blue ends on this very um frustrating note which I really appreciated about McQueen's film, it shows that the project against racism hasn't been over, even in this current context, when even when the police, you know, are obviously less brutal, so to speak, to black people, but there's still this lingering sense of racism and oppression going on in the film. Oh yeah, and, and one last thing, I thought there was a very interesting uh, Star Wars joke that they make in the film about Boyega's character. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun moment. I do also, very, I, I agree with you, the ending I think is a very good moment and how like unconclusive it is it sort of ends on like a question mark more than in, in a period it sort of allows you to come to your own conclusions about like the journey that this character goes through so that is certainly to be appreciated I think it was just specifically I think his relationship with his father I think it was, I think the specific aspect that I wasn't feeling as much as it feels crucial. Like, I think for the movie to work, I think that relationship really needs to feel like drawn and specific and like felt. And I just did not really feel it as much as I wanted to. I think his, the actor who played his father, I'm not, I'm not sure of his name. I think I don't think I love that performance, which is my main problem. But I do agree that I agree with the point you made. But I think it does use the fact that you can anticipate it's the places where it will go to its sort of advantage because it sort of creates this sense of frustration within you that I think it wants to communicate. I just sometimes question how effective it is, and sometimes it's not. But that's an interesting point. Uh, um. I really liked the whole Small Axe trilogy. Um, I think this might have been my least favorite of the three, but having said that, I don't think I rated any of them less than like four out of five stars. So I liked all of them. I feel like where Lover's Rock was sort of about building um, a culture and Mangrove is about a movement. I think um, Red, White, and Blue is about sort of an individual within a system and um, I think it's really the most contemplative of the three pieces. Um, it's really just, you know, we, we kind of know all of the kind of predictable notes that it's going to hit in terms of like, okay, he's going to encounter this within the police department. But I think where it really excels is that it um, really dives into that push and pull of like trying to please everybody and, um, you know, failing <laughs> and um, just how hard it is to find a solution that works for you and works for your community and works for a larger, you know, social construct. Um, and it also, if nothing else, it shows how much we really need to be giving John Boyega good roles because he deserves them. And I feel like he's been shortchanged in a lot of films and he, he deserves movies like this and, you know, just like really, really good scripts and content. Um, so I, I thought he was really, really solid in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a particularly impressive showcase of him as, like, a movie star. Because obviously, like, as we talked about, the film sort of hinges on you being able to buy in to a person who, like, from the outset, you know, is making a sort of, like, wrong choice that you, like, in that you personally wouldn't make. So to, like, be able to carry that sort of weight on your shoulder is, like, an impressive showcase for Boyega, I do agree.
Yeah, I had big Denzel Washington vibes, like that righteous indignation that he gets. Um, I felt like he really captured that. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I have anything else to say. Uh, any other clothing thoughts on uh, Red, White, and Blue? Actually, when I, went, when I watched it, I didn't even realize it was Boyega because I haven't seen Boyega in anything except Star Wars. So I didn't really register. Only halfway, I thought, oh, this guy looks familiar. And oh, yeah, it's John Boyega. But I think it's credits to him for, you know, immersing himself into the role so smoothly and so naturally that you, you, kind of, you sort of like, you don't see, uh, at least for me, I didn't see the star first. I saw the character first. And I think... Um, uh, in general, I thought, yeah, I, I, I actually quite liked it. I, I wasn't expecting to like it so much after seeing Mangrove because I thought that, you know, McQueen's current um, trilogy would, uh, set of films would be more didactic than anything else. But I think, as what uh, both of you have mentioned, it's the didacticism works in part because it's like we are prepared for it. And I think uh, it's the fact that it's, it doesn't, it, it's muted, it doesn't really end triumphant. It's a testament to McQueen's... Um, uh, restraint and sort of like portraying um, the sort of the, the heroism and the victory of people who want to set about to go about setting change because ultimately it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a good work because it's frustrating and it's frustrating because it wants uh, it, it shows that how much more there is to be done and it's, it, I, think it's, I think it's a better film for, ways, to, for raising awareness uh, of such um, issues of uh, police brutality and you know uh, a lack of communication within and distrust in within communities for yeah for the public i think it's it's probably um a more effective film than mango but that being said lover's rock is my favorite film by far it's 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 too connect it's so connecting and everything yeah i'm i'm sort of in the same boat where it's like i i enjoy all three of them but it's like lover's rock and then a huge gap and then these two other movies which i think are pretty good there are two more films, right? Coming out next month. Yeah, there's two more. I think I want to say the orders. It's going to be they're coming out weekly, and it's going to be Mangrove, and then Lovers Rock, and then the two that were not in the festival, and then Red, White, and Blue is the last one. I'm not sure if because I think this is, this is a television film, so I'm not sure whether they qualify for the Oscars. But I think if they do, I think Mangrove would like. Stand a chance to win big. I think I can see it up there, contending yeah. for best picture. Yeah, like as you said, like whether how much you feel about it, sort of like big sweeping emotional state. It's it's certainly a very stirring movie that can elicit a lot of feelings from people, and I it like worked on me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys want to move on to Arabi and Mikalad. Sure. I can start on that because that is actually a movie that I really responded to. Uh, Adarabi and Mikalach. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was... Nece- I did a little bit of research and I couldn't tell if it was necessarily a retelling of a specific Basque myth or if it was more just sort of a riff on that general mythology. Uh, like uh, the the character... the two. So the two main characters... Uh, are these two brothers who are uh, essentially half gods uh, and their mother, who their mother is like a a major figure in Basque mythology. She leaves them with essentially the devil uh, to get their, uh, their education. And then, uh, once they've grown up, they kind of go in different directions. One of them remains on the side of evil, and one of them uh, eventually escapes and strives for the path of good, uh, but kind of struggles because in the process of his escape, uh, the devil steals his shadow, which essentially the the, the premise of this movie or what he is told at least by uh, the the monastery that he's living in is that that uh, does not allow him to receive God's light. And so uh, I just think, I guess I'm kind of always on board for these kind of riffs on mythology uh and this is 
it's sort of only uh like tangentially like a modern riff like there's a few references like the the devil has like headphones and is listening to rap music but uh, because he likes to stay very hip and current uh but other than that uh it pretty much could be set at any time as opposed to uh undina which we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later which is much more specifically set in the present uh but yeah this is just like uh it's very very kind of slow kind of dry a little bit funny uh but yeah, in the end, I think it's like a a really cool kind of representation of this mythology that I didn't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, I I like on a conceptual level, I was like very on board. This is one where it like just stylistically, I like struggled. <laughs> like it's 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 the kind of movie that like there's like three beats in between every line of dialogue. Like it takes, Mm -hmm. like it takes really long time to like do anything in any scene. And like, you like cut to a close up of the one character. There's some silence. They deliver their line. Then you cut to the close up of the other character. There's some silence and they deliver their, like, it's like, that's sort of the pace the whole way through. Like there's no real variation in that. And I found that a real struggle to like stay on board and stay focused on, uh with the whole time but like yeah i i was pretty intrigued especially by like the setup and like it's like pretty fun on a visual level i think like like the costuming of the devil i think Mm -hmm. is like very fun and cool and the way that they costume the the uh the two brothers and everything and Mm -hmm. like everything about like the look and stuff i was into yeah it's just like that pacing like especially in an at-home virtual environment was like not something that i was like really able to to take uh, for a full feature runtime. I think that's a very um, characteristic film of Eugene Green, because I, I think I've seen most of his films earlier. And mm-hmm. what you said, this um, this close-up, it's, it's like a short reverse shot, and he does mm-hmm. it all the way. And it, I think it's less extreme in Atarabi and Mikulat. Some mm-hmm. of his earlier films are literally composed of just short reverse shots. They're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no room for anything else. And I think yeah. I liked it because... Um, on one hand, it's a stylistic idiosyncrasy of him. It's like, you see this, you know it's Eugene Green. But on the other hand, I think it, it also helps to divest in some way from the, uh, the, sort of the, inter, the individual uh, status of these characters and make it more of a mythological... Uh, it makes, makes, makes the scenes acquire a mythological mm. status. Like you're watching almost like an adaptation of a religious text, which I think in this case is sort of true. There's no text per se, but it is a myth. So I think having these sort of formal restrictions here helps to make it like, it's almost like green painting a tableau of of a parable of good and evil and i i think it, it works in the film's benefit although it is quite slow and this film i think um towards the end it kind of stretches out a little bit like uh once uh some something happens and uh you know someone uh disappears and the scene just goes on for quite some time i didn't know what's going to happen but i think it's quite a beautiful film it's, it's a really beautifully short thing and the sort of weird idiosyncrasies of like the devil and you know his rap music and there's one sequence I think in this underground bar when they come the, the, the devil's disciples come into a circle and they dance and this weird mm-hmm. monster comes to the center mm-hmm. and it's like this ritualistic chant oh, yeah. it's hilarious That's I don't know why it's just hilarious yeah I think yeah it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lighthearted riff on a myth but mm-hmm. it, it's great yeah I um I definitely vibed with it um I was really interested in all of the Basque culture elements of it. Like the language is nothing like anything I've heard before. Um, And I was doing some research and apparently it's this language that has no other like sibling languages. There's nothing that sounds quite like that, which I found fascinating. Um, I was really into the presentational style of it, the shot reverse shot um, sort of techniques. um, And I can totally see why that would be a turnoff. Um, I felt like it worked for the myth- mythological aspects of it mm-hmm. because I-, I think it's it's painting in really broad strokes. And I think that's what myths do. They kind of boil down these very essential concepts um, into like very simple pieces. And so I, I, I sort of felt like 
the filmmaking was leaning into that. Um, so I was, I was cool with it. I liked that it sort of felt like it was taking place almost like out of time. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it was in this yeah. separate space. I had no idea when it's supposed to be taking place. And I, I enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, I, I can totally see why this would be something that is not everybody's cup of tea, but I, I found myself really enjoying it and actually burning through it relatively quickly, even though it was a virtual screening. So. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, should we go to Neturno? Does anyone sure. else? Or Jesse, you, you didn't have anything else on it? I guess the, uh, so like in terms of the shot reverse shot, it's interesting because I, often really don't like shot reverse shot partially because I think it's often done very lazily even in otherwise good films but I think this works because it is done so specifically and so committedly even if that does mean that there is often like several beats of silence in between dialogue as Andy said I think that that it ends up working as a whole because uh it is so kind of rigorous mm -hmm. but yeah i think we can move on to nocturno sure um i can start us off on this one so this is um it's a new documentary from uh it's gianfranco right this is the first name rossi yeah uh, who did fire at sea his most recent film which uh was in the best doc uh, feature category at the Oscars a few years ago. And so it's also won the Golden Lion. Yes. The Golden Bear. The Golden Bear. Oh, the Bear. The Golden Bear. Okay. Yeah, I think it was his yeah. previous film that won the Golden Lion. Right. Um, so this is. Um, I, I So I, I had seen Fire at Sea sort of as like an Oscars catch up for that year. Uh, and I was like pretty mixed on that one. This one I really responded to a lot more, I think. Um, it's. Uh, very um, beautiful. It's like the the cinematography is like maybe my favorite of the year. Like every shot, I was like, this is like just really incredible stuff to to capture. He captures like it's it's basically like little snippets from all around basically the Middle East, um, uh, just showing sort of like how what life is is like sort of in re response to you know, a, a lot of the, the like um, military interventions and like all, like all the things that have been happening, right? So it's really just sort of an attempt to capture like, well, how does life go on in this area where like this has been like a constant presence um, uh, and even more so in the recent past? Uh, there's, um, there are several, you know, so, so there's many different like very there's many different unconnected things within the movie but sort of the thing that it keeps returning to I feel like is the way that people process trauma um and it's like there's there's a recurring thing of like a bunch of people who are doing some sort of like drama therapy where they're uh rehearsing and learning a, like a a play that they're going to perform as part of their um, to help their like mental health in, 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 in the aftermath of some of this stuff. And there's like a really striking scene where you spend some time with some young children and you see like a lot of the artwork that they have made uh, that the that people are, are, are using to help them as an art therapy uh, in response to some of these, um, some of the horrible things that they have, have had to, to go through. Uh, and and yeah, I, like I think it's yeah, it's it's an incredibly striking visually film, uh, and it is, and and I think some of those those scenes uh, and the recurring motifs of just like yeah, people trying to work through and and trying to keep going on uh, as as in a world that has had such terrible things happen to them. I I I, I thought many of those elements were incredibly memorable, and uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite documentaries that I've seen so far this year. Yeah, I think I liked it very much as well. I, I went, I actually saw it before the world premiere, like a few days before the mm -hmm. premiere at Venice. And I think um, I, I saw Fire, no, I saw this first and Fire at Sea. And I think compared to Fire at Sea, um, I, I, I prefer Fire at Sea, but I think Nocturno is, um, it's a film that um, I guess it, people can fault it for being a bit too uh, generic and context contextualist. But I think that contextless, but I think it, it's to the film's advantage because it doesn't, it sees the Middle East not just as as mm -hmm. like um, 
as a as a series of borders and caliphates, which is what like the that's that's like the sort of narrative of ISIS and all the terrorist groups that try to assert power in the region. But it seems as more as more humanizing film of people, ordinary people and civilians who are devastated by the, the trauma of war and trying to rebuild it. But the thing about it is that they're not rebuilding it in like it's, it's not really a post-war era. There's no post-war to speak of. It's like a perpetual mm-hmm. a lingering sense of violence, as you can see the title, Nocturnal. It's, it's like the night, but and and even in the night when in the background you hear shots of you hear, hear gunshots, you hear you see fires burning in, in in the distance. And it's this sense of uneasiness that permeates the whole film, such that which contrasts directly with how stark and painterly like Rossi's shots are. They're, they're so mm-hmm. neatly done. You think that they are, he made a feature film out of it. Right, but yeah. in reality, it's like, it, it took like three years to, to go around places, find get permits and, you know, hope people were still alive when they got back to them. And I think I read somewhere that um, they shot over, they shot like, I think a hundred times more footage than what was in the final cut. But mm-hmm. and a lot of things that, there were a lot of things that happened during the production when, they wanted to shoot, but they couldn't shoot because either because they hadn't put a camera there yet or they weren't given approval yet. So this was like what they managed to get out of it. And I think that in a way, his um, his calibration and how restrained he is in sort of capturing certain things and other things, it, it speaks to his abilities as a director not to try to show everything, every bombastic thing that's happening around the area. Let's say if there's a gun's fire killing someone right on screen, he doesn't bother showing that. He shows like, the more intimate things and almost voyeuristic elements of um, the different plights that civilians face. For example, I think there's one scene when there's this mother, uh, she's in a dark room and she's reading messages of from her daughter who was kidnapped by ISIS and the messages progress and get worse and worse. At first she's like, oh, I'm all right. And later on she's like, mom, I need help, save me. And it got really haunting and basically by the end of it, I think the, the, the mother was crying and everything. And later I found out that the scene wasn't even shot in the Middle East. It was shot in Germany because the mother was in a safe house, I think, in Germany while her daughter was still at ISIS. So I think that um, it's one thing to just try to open your camera and shoot whatever that comes, that whatever you see in like um, the film. It's a lot of documentaries like to use, like, you know, uh, the handheld cameras to just film everything cinema very like. But I think Ross's film uh, uh, is, uh, works to a remarkable degree because it, really picks and chooses and it doesn't it goes to a different to a whole different series of places and captures like very um different um scenarios that all speak to the same sort of human condition of you know of, of torture and, tra- and and trauma and how they try to rebuild things out of the trauma and i really liked um how he he framed the military shots because in in a, in a lesser film you would you expect him to try to show a scenes of conflict and violence but and most of the shots involving the military, and you see them doing their own things. You see them like coming back from an exercise, they wash up, they man the guard post, it's all quiet. And this stillness is what makes it the most uneasy, I think, because, um, yeah, it, it, it's a very, it, it's a haunting film that you can see like the specter of violence everywhere and not yeah. just, you know, in the kids' drawings, but throughout the film itself. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that it, it, it's, a, it's a really like, Striking film, and I I would have actually voted for the Golden Line if I could, but yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, it kind of got dissed at at Venice. Yeah, completely. All right, do we want to move on to uh, the Christian Petzold film Undina? Yeah, fair Uh, warning. I haven't seen that yet, and I'm watching it like tomorrow, so I'm going to take my headphones out. So nothing's spoiled for me. Give me a uh, thumbs up when you're done. Thumbs up, great. Yeah, not not that we would spoil it too much for our listeners, but it is a a film that kind of has a lot up its sleeve. Uh, so it's the the story of this woman named Undina, and uh, it starts with a relationship ending, and she uh she actually she so it's based on the kind of myth of the undina which is a uh, kind of a, a german uh water nymph and i think part of the sort of mythology is that uh if uh, a man says that he's in love with her and then goes back on that she has to kill him and so this man is ending this relationship uh and 
uh, she, she outright says to him, if you don't stay with me, I, I am going to have to kill you. Uh, and so uh he then he just kind of disappears from the film he he uh walks out on her and she meets another man uh christoph played by franz rogowski uh undina i didn't mention is played by paula beer uh these are the two stars of uh petzold's last film transit uh and so, yeah, it, the first half of it is really just this kind of uh, wonderful, uh, very sexy romance between Rogowski and Beer. Uh, and then at the halfway point, something happens that kind of uh, throws a wrench in both the film and in their lives and uh and in their relationship and so from there it kind of spirals out in a few different directions uh and yeah i think it 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 is a a weird film to talk about when people haven't seen i think we might revisit it uh once it has been released uh but yeah I, i think it's quite wonderful uh it is you know it's similar in some ways to uh petzold's previous films especially his last one with the same two stars uh there's there's some element maybe of the kind of out of timeness of transit like it it could be maybe in the present except that uh there's like flip phones but n- nothing nearly as extreme as transit uh but yeah it, it i think it's just two really wonderful performances and wonderful characters uh yeah does anyone else want to follow up on that oh i saw it like i saw this like i think many months ago way before mm-hmm. i think right yeah, after berlin so I, berlin, my memory yeah. is a bit hazy but I think it, I liked it a lot, but I think it's still lesser Petzold because uh, for, the very, for the very um, simple reason that Petzold's best films tend to be more focused on, I think, um, social, political uh, allegories, mm-hmm. whereas Undina is more of a, it's more of a mythological romance with uh, elements of, you know, I think German history and everything. Uh, part of it looks at the, the whole um, the architecture and the, the history of German, the, 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 the Berlin, the, the Berlin uh, city, the building and everything, the layers of um, its foundations. But... Honestly, I, I don't feel qualified to talk about that now because I saw that like, a few months ago. But what I can say about Undina that struck me is how um how fluid uh the, the, the how fluid the, the 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 narrative and the camera work are because um mm-hmm. it's like the first half is what you said it's it's like a seamless romance you know everything happens it's so it, it's like a it's a like a very good uh romance film from some um from from a Hollywood uh studio but without the comedy it's almost like a, just like a pure romantic drama and I think. It, it sort of like, it shoots for such high levels of, it's so beautiful and so um, tactile. And kind of, you kind of know that because of this, something bad will happen. Mm-hmm. And first of all, because it, it's too good to be true. The, the scene where I think Rogowski kills, uh, uh, kisses Paula Beer at the station and she, she leaves, the, the, the parting shot was kind of like a, a presaging of what was to come. And I think secondly, because it's after all, like a, it's a, based on a myth. And the myth does say that if you leave her, she'll have to kill you. And the first guy's, you know, uh, disappearance wasn't really addressed in any way. So I thought that, you know, that was a sort of a very um, ominous foreshadowing of what was to come mm-hmm. for the film. And I think um, Petzold shooting underwater is one of the best things I've seen. Like, yes, absolutely. Wow, it's like incredible. I think that the, the, the sort of shots when the, the, the person vanishes slowly be, beneath the, ho- the horizon of the water and it just sinks to the depth. It's something out of like, I don't know, uh, maybe like uh, Lady... The water or something? I don't. I've not seen that film, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's just it's such a haunting film. Yeah, yeah. I can sort of speak to what I was sort of intrigued by it is sort of just how much chemistry Beer and uh, uh, Rogowski have. Like clearly, they have. They're coming off of like another straight movie, so it's like Petzold is clearly very interested in these two actors and what they can sort of portray. And I think they're like 
as you mentioned, like transit and some of other Petzold films are like these very social political allegories, and this is more of a a romantic drama. But I think what unites this movie and transit is a sort of like exploration of what it means to like care about others and sort of like give a piece of yourself to another person and like the power dynamics that it exists within like a sort of romantic struggle like in transit it obviously explores that through the lens of like being like a lone survivor in like a very dangerous place versus trying to care and help others versus if well undine is just sort of it, like as you as we mentioned it's a romance but i think the pathos that it mines out of just like Rogowski's like set a naturally sad and interesting face and then beers they're both very like naturally wistful looking people and I think Petzold minds their very interesting looks for for a lot of like drama and as you mentioned like the contrast between its first half which is a sort of conventional drama and then the like sort of supernatural sort of mythological like bents that it goes in on its second half or it's like a joy to watch i echo the sentiment about petzl's talent about underwater shooting and just how gorgeous those frames are and just how much again how much those two actors and in like obviously in transit petzl i mean uh rogowski is more of the star a lot of the like drama falls on him and this beard of the beard of a little bit more of the heavy lifting she has these like her character's job is that as, as this like museum presenter and she has to go on these sort of like long monologues about the history of berlin architecture and those sorts of things that are like in lesser hands could be very like like boring and like less engaging to watch but in beer and petzl's hand it becomes as engaging as any of the uh, like more outwardly swooning or romantic parts of the film yeah i think i think it's a it's a contrast to sort of his earlier trilogy i think this this one focuses more on uh elements and love and and elemental sort of like uh you know um tropes and symbolisms i think his next film that's what he announced recently was to be, a, I think, a gay love story starring Rogowski called The Red Sky. And I think it focuses on fire compared to water. I, I don't know how it's mm-hmm. going to turn out, but yeah. Interesting. Jesse, do you have anything else to say? No, I think we can uh, bring back in Audrey to talk about uh, beginning. Does anyone want to start us off on that? Uh, Audrey, do you want to start off talking about Beginning? Sure. Um, So Beginning is a very slow film that is about a woman who is um, part of the Jehovah's Witnesses movement um, and her church burns down. Um, It is burned down by arsonists and her husband leaves to go try to secure funding um, from the group of elders in a city. So she's sort of left alone with her young son and sort of her own feelings of of loneliness and a a loss of identity that comes from just sort of being a a wife and mother and having um, not really a lot of other things to, um, you know, keep her her, um, engaged and really just her sense of isolation, um, which is all stuff that I'm totally on board with and I think is really interesting to explore. I just struggled with this, I think, because of how long it took to watch um and there were there's some really beautiful shots and i feel like this director for a first time director is is so confident and so purposeful in how they're how they're building this world and you know the shots that they choose are incredible um i just it felt like it wasn't even so much of a slow burn. It was like when you spend two hours trying to light a bunch of dry leaves on fire and all you get is smoke. Um, And I just was um, having a hard time with that aspect of it where I, I felt like, you know, it would just be a nice lengthy shot of her in the woods, which is beautiful. And then it would last for another two full minutes um after I already got the point um so yeah I I definitely had a hard time watching it especially on my computer and I don't know if anybody else is having this problem but sitting through entire films in one sitting 
for these festivals on my computer is is tough for me. Um, I'm, I don't have that problem in theaters, but I definitely have that problem sitting on my couch. So um, this did not help that problem that I have. So. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly talked about it on this podcast before, how some of these films are better suited than others for like the at-home, in-home viewing experience. And I do sort of like, share your feeling that like if I saw beginning on it in a theater where I could be more enveloped by it I think I would have a much more positive experience with it but that being said I do like the like even at home I did enjoy the experience like towards the end it was a sort of movie that I had to like sit with for a little bit to sort of coalesce my thoughts on because it's like it's doing a lot and its frames are very dense. And even if it sits on a shot for a long time, that's the sort of thing that's just like causes me to rack my mind for a long time. And it's sort of beguiling in those ways, but I did enjoy how it's like this sort of, it's, it's trying to be like sort of suffocating because it's trying to like be this, uh, try to like convey this experience that this woman is having of just like her identity being either swallowed up by a church or by motherhood or by being the wife of this person and how just like being a woman in this world just like eliminates opportunity and it eliminates personhood and the moments in which it sort of captures what the life she would have liked to have or like you mentioned the shot of a woman uh, when she just like is sitting in the woods for two minutes or whatever. I thought that shot is like, it is sort of like puzzling and sort of slow and you do sort of get it at the beginning. But the more I sat with it, the more I sort of enjoyed just like a moment of serenity in a film that can occasionally be very harrowing as it, it has very explicit depictions of things like sexual assault. Yeah, I think um, that's what that's what Audrey said. It, it it is a punishing film, and I think it's not not just because of its pacing, but because of its content. But I think uh, I've I've seen worse. I think Simon Lang's days is like even slower to go through. But what I really liked about the film is that how it juxtaposes this sort of like beauty of the the natural beauty of the landscapes with such cruel violence. And it's very cruel. It's almost a very cruel scenario to see how even within nature. I mean, even in like on the plates of nature, such like um violent act can be performed like i think there's one scene in the middle we, we see her just walking you, you don't expect anything to happen she's walking and all of a sudden the guy the detective from before rushes onto her and just like actually assaults her like physically this time sexually as well and i thought that the scene was really punishing um but i think what was interesting about this film is that it doesn't try it, it's not simply like a a, a a tale of like um rape and assault it's a, it's almost like a it's a very it's a it has a spiritual contemplation to her identity. And I think that um what uh Kulumbagashvili does well is that she foregrounds the woman as this as this as torn between her different uh social obligations and her own sort of uh I think her own personal desire. Because I think she used to be an actress before she married uh this 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 Jehovah's Witness guy. And um although it's never like it's never really one never mentioned again in the film, it's sort of lingering in the background of her identity and um, the fact that she almost seems to accept her the sexual assault as like uh, is, she almost accepts it I think because um, of she she feels that you know once as as like a as like a mother and as like a, 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 a belonging to this um, religious community it's almost like her punishment for leaving her, her world of acting and for marrying this man and I think she almost internalizes this. Um, the violence that she feels, such that to the point I think at the end when her husband confronts her about it, her husband thinks that she's being, uh, you know, she, she's sleeping around instead of being raped. She just goes along with it. She she begs for punishment and she she just submits to the whole the, the overarching like the religious order around it. And I think it's it's it's, it's striking because um most films tend to, you know, they depict the rape and this violence as simply um, uh, you know, it, it, it's a wrong thing, which is of course true. But this film does it in foreground in this sort of spiritual sense that she sort of like tries to make sense of it through her own like through contemplation and you know uh, uh, as well as uh, that as well as having this religious dimension to it it it, it kind of adds a very interesting uh, additional layer to the film because you know she has to con- she's confronting like many different social orders which she is inevitably in- entrapped within. 
So yeah, I think it's a very it's a very frustrating and stifling film. And I think the the sequence in the middle when she lies in the, the middle for like I think seven minutes and her son her son thinks she's dead and her son panics and therefore she wakes up. I thought that was like one really one rare moment where we can just sit in and just breathe when the violence is just all around us. So that was a very that was a very very like uh, relaxing moment I thought. I mean yeah, it's sort of like it's weird because it sort of does as punishing and it has slow and it's difficult as it is. It does sort of like build its own structure like from the beginning. It's sort of this movie about just like people trying to find this peace and serenity and trying to find their like own place in the world and then it being harshly interrupted by just like mo- to her character mostly like men coming in to like exert their control over her in like sometimes like physically violent ways sometimes emotionally violent ways and as you said it's sort of it's sort of like it's a very empathetic movie towards her character and just like how she isn't how like she just like unfortunately has to make sense of, of these things and sort of like give herself a narrative as to why these things are happening even though like there she is not at fault for any of it yeah i feel like this movie um would be a great critical analysis i think you could write a 30 page thesis just on this movie it's got a lot going on that said for me horrible viewing experience i um (laughs) honestly i i have seen enough films about women getting raped and then blamed for it to last me a lifetime I am all set in that arena. And I, I think for me, no matter how sensitively and interestingly and um, contemplatively they're told, I still sort of get to that point where I'm just like, okay, I'm going to sit through this again. I'm going to watch a woman get violated on screen again. And so like that always just is just another thing. (laughs) Um, no, yeah, I mean, it for sure makes sense. It's like, it's sort of the struggle of a lot of these movies of just like trying, like wondering how much leeway you're going to like try to find something new to say about something that has been depicted often. Like, as you said, like this sort of like stories of these women getting raped is like, unfortunately, a very, a, a ground well-tread by movies. And it's like, there it's like with any sort of topic you sort of have you can sort of find new ways to like dance around it and i think this movie does it in some sort of way but also it's like at some point you just get it and i can totally see somebody watching this movie and being like yeah i could i sort of like i got it like i don't i don't know if i need two hours of this but yeah like if we want to close it out and move on to American Utopia. A yeah, very different movie, I would imagine. I have not watched. Completely shift gears. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only one who's seen this, so I'm just going to say a quick piece on it. You can also check out our episode uh, from Toronto where a couple of our guests had seen it, uh, and there'll be a sli- there's a slightly longer conversation about it there. But uh, in terms of my thoughts on it, I think you know the the choreography is amazing the direction is amazing david burns voice is amazing the thing is it is maybe two-thirds of the songs uh in the show are from the album american utopia and american utopia is a merely good album and so it is slightly hamstrung by like even though these are like good totally listenable totally danceable songs like when he's playing uh a talking head song it's just like it raises up another level uh and like obviously it can't just be a bunch of talking head songs because then it's just uh stop making sense but i almost wonder uh like there's uh Towards the end, he does a cover of a Janelle Monet song. And I wonder if instead of augmenting uh, these American Utopia songs with Talking Head songs, if he had 
augmented it with more covers uh i wonder or just something something other than talking head songs that remind us of just how good the talking heads are uh but yeah it's great it's totally worth watching still uh like it's it's just in my opinion maybe held back from being like truly great uh but yeah, I think we can uh, wrap up now. Uh, before we do so, uh, Morris and Audrey, do you guys have anything you want to promote? Um, well, I have some New York Film Festival coverage going up um, over at Jump Cut Online and mm-hmm. um, other writings at We Live Entertainment. So you can check out any of my stuff there. And I'm on Twitter at Odd on a Mission. That is my handle. Well, yeah, I think I, I write for, I have a few uh, pieces of coverage on uh, in review online, uh, INRO, and my Twitter is at MauriceYCY1, so it's MauriceYCY and the number one, and, and I also like to uh, maybe, um, yeah, thanks, thank, thank everyone for this opportunity to present the podcast, and I think uh, one last thing to recommend from the New York Festival is this film called The Lobby, Behind Emic Codes, I think it's wonderful, it's like 70 minutes long, and it's about mortality, and, and death, and everything, and wow, it's both depressing and comical. So yeah, go check that out if it's possible. Okay, great. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming yes, and talk you. to us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Can I Kick It, spelled just like it's spelled in your podcast app. You can find us on Letterboxd at C-I-K-I-Pod. You can find me on either of those platforms at JP Lake Weber. Weber has two Bs. Uh, Andy? Yep, I'm Andy. You can find me on social media platforms at Andy T Germ. That's G-E-R-M uh, at the end. Uh, also say, uh, we don't, we're bad about consistently saying this. If you like what you're hearing, uh, give us a rating on whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to us on, because mm-hmm. that uh, is a nice thing to do. And we, we, whenever someone writes a new review, we, ne- we try to figure out who it is and we can never do it. And it's the thing that we, 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 we talk about. <laughs> Emilio. Okay. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at I'm laugh alone. I am laugh alone altogether. And you can follow me on uh, letterbox at I laugh alone. Uh, our theme song is by Tree Related. You can find them at soundcloud.com slash tree related or search tree related on Spotify. All right. Then with that, I will go ahead and release our audience. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>